Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. ¿Qué es para usted la vida, Borges? Es una interesante aventura, ¿eh? Y estamos comprometidos en esa aventura. Y, y que moriremos emprendiendo esa aventura, con feliz o con adversa fortuna. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, well, here we are in El Paso, recording in person, face-to-face, in the same room. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, you smell, you smell kind of good. Is that some sort of product you're wearing? I don't know, like Axe Body Spray? What, what is that? It's my Tommy Girl. <laughs> It's, it's actually my favorite scent. Um, you 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 also smell <laughs> smell very nice. God damn it! Fine, we're not in El Paso, <laughs> but it's not my fault. Is it not? It's not my fault. This is. <laughs> I was had my tickets ready to go, my hotel booked, and the flight just did. I got an alert that the flight was going to miss its connection. My first alert was I had to connect through Chicago from Ithaca and it was, oh, we can get you to El Paso. And then it gave me a four connection flight that had to go to Detroit, to L.A. and then back to El Paso. (laughs) So the other option was to get up at three in the morning and drive, miss half the conference. And Tamler, you're worth a lot, but you're not. Here's an alternate version of that story. You realized, wait, what the fuck am I doing going to El Paso in the middle of (laughs) August? Like, you know how well, long, how long it took me to get American <laughs> Airlines to introduce a delay? Like it cost a lot of money. <laughs> how was it? It was actually really fun. Uh, the really good people, and uh, it's really beautiful out there. Like it was hot, but you know you had the whole morning to hike or do what you wanted, and a lot of the evening you just really couldn't be outside from like twelve to. Seven or one to seven or something like that, but um, it, I, I, there's something about the desert landscape that I just absolutely love. And the conference was good. A lot of it was a good mix of philosophers and psychologists. Linda Skitka was there. She knows you. Yeah, yeah. She's a, I, I love I love Linda. She's great. Yeah. I was actually bummed not to be able to hang out with her. And she um, uh, said that her son listened to the podcast, but that she had never uh, listened to a single yeah. word of it. I know she, she, last I talked to her, she, she was honest with me because Linda's an honest person. She yeah. just couldn't get past my giggles. 
it's hard for all of us, really. It is. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it was great. It was a good conference, met some good people. So today we're going to talk about The Garden of Forking Paths, a short story by Borges, who we discussed last time. This is the story that immediately follows the Library of Babel and definitely has some connections to the library. Like, it's interesting that they're back-to-back in his collection. You know, arguably, it's hard to understand the Garden of Forking Paths, or at least it's relevant if you've just read the library. So, like, that worked out, I think, really well, that we are doing these episodes back-to-back. We'll also talk about something that I did in El Paso and you did while you were supposed to be in El Paso, which is see the movie uh, Sorry to Bother You. So we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Do you want to talk about Sorry to Bother You? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk. So I was really excited about the movie coming out. I think in part because just seeing a bunch of the people that I randomly follow on Twitter uh, tweeting who'd, who'd gotten to see it, I think, at Sundance or whatever. That was months ago. So I've been waiting to see it. And of course, it's an independent film, so didn't show up right away in my little ass town of Ithaca. Um, so when it finally did come out, I was very excited. It's directed and written by Boots Riley, who is a rapper from Oakland and is a member of a group called The Coup, which was one of my favorite rap groups. Um, back in the early 90s so i highly recommend recommend listening to any of those albums from the coup he's a really sharp dude and he's a communist so if you don't like communists don't listen to them but but it's <laughs> but but then i don't know what you would think of sorry to bother you <laughs> which, we, <laughs> which we can get into but he's a super sharp creative guy and his parents um, were like labor activists and so oh, I, this I is that, like yeah. a family kind of deal and like you said sorry to bother you has the the, that kind of under you certainly don't have to be a communist to enjoy the movie or to that it gives you a lot to think about but um but that is an undercurrent in the movie or not even it's not subject it's it's often text and um yeah so what do you think of the movie we haven't really talked about it no we haven't we're going in cold and so we have to say that that they're there are made like we're not going to spoil anything in this discussion yeah right um and and it's hard to have a full discussion about the movie without talking about s- some pretty heavy spoilers so we'll just try to to work around it and talk i'll just talk about my general impressions of the movie we are planning to do a patreon episode on it where we will get into spoilers so you should see it and see it in the theater and i'm going to rewatch it like i think it's yeah, definitely re- for sure going to benefit from a rewatch too yeah yeah for sure for sure i i really liked it it is weird it is like from the <laughs> i think when you you and i tweeted a bit uh, uh, about it after after we saw it and and you described it, i don't remember what you said but it is some blend of sort of magic realism and you're uh, i don't think i did that you didn't you didn't say that yeah no. i don't think <laughs> i said anything about it. <laughs> um it's absurd it, like it, there's this there's a layer of absurdity to it that is yeah I hate to say Kafkaesque but it really is um and or Brazil uh, you know if, if for listeners Bra- who've seen right. the movie Brazil I would say that's a parallel to like they're just things that happen that are just 
strange dist like there's this kind of dystopian element to it even though it is taking place maybe in the past right um and so so roughly like the the plot is that there is a uh a, a man in oakland who is he's poor he's black he's from oakland he's struggling to make ends meet lives in a, <laughs> in a garage with his girlfriend um and he gets a job doing telemarketing just selling stupid shit, you know, doing cold calls. Um, but then he gets he gets advice from a senior black telemarketer that if he just uses his white voice, he'll do a lot better. And at first he he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. This this already is my white voice. I kind of talk white. He's like, No, no, you know it. And then and then magically, it's the voice of David Cross that comes out of his mouth. I didn't just, even know that. That's hilarious. Oh, you didn't know it was David Cross? No, <laughs> that's awesome. And the other the other black character <clears throat> who has the white voice um, later on in the movie, the mustachioed gentleman, that's Patton Oswalt's voice. Oh, <laughs> that makes sense. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah the guy with the, the eye patch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. Danny Glover briefly has a white voice too. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, so then it's the story of sort of his rapid rise to success and everything that comes along with it. But, but meanwhile, as he's succeeding, there's this labor unrest within in the telemarketing group that um, he has been a part of before he gets promoted, and so that's the central tension. And you know, there is a, it's fairly straightforward you know, while still having stylized and kind of absurdist, like, weirdness in the way that things will cut, like, and then all of a sudden they'll be in a new place. That's why I saw it with a couple of friends, and I was trying to... I, I couldn't put my my finger on what it was about those. They're almost like small phrases within the film that can be non-sequiturs, and you could try to connect them, yeah. but they... Like, he's Stanfield... It's great, by the way. He's in. He's also in um, uh, Atlanta. A TV show Atlanta, and in and in uh, Jordan Peele's movie Get Out. Yeah, he plays um, the the first guy who's he's the yeah. guy in the opening scene who's then taken prisoner and then bec- again becomes kind of white. Yeah, <laughs> and he's he's also in uh, Straight Outta Compton as Snoop Dogg. Um, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, but it makes sense, right? Yeah, it does. And actually, I have to say, uh, currently basking in the sun of the Inland Empire, I, I'd like to acknowledge Lakeith Stanfield being from my hometown, <clears throat> Riverside and San Bernardino. He's, we have a connection. Lakeith, if you're listening, hit me so, up. A couple of th- I, I really liked the movie. I One of the things we'll talk about in our Patreon spoiler episode is the end like mm-hmm. the last 20 minutes where it ups the notch of weirdness. I mean, I know from the critical response to it, there's there's it's very mixed, especially to sort of the you know, close to the very end sort of what happens. But things take a, a strange turn. I I don't know if I am pro or con yet or but I'm very pro the whole movie and yeah. I I think Tessa Thompson who plays his girlfriend who's an artist um, she's kind of a, I don't know, some sort of modern, young, radical artist, and that's and her art is is radical. Right. I, she does some performance art, very very weird. I think that I I I love Tessa Thompson, and I think that if any 
practically any other actor played that role, you might hate that character. You might find her really fucking annoying, but she yeah. sells it in a way that you don't at all. And I yeah. think that's a really tough, because it, it is a little bit of an idealized version of what uh, a girlfriend like that would be. She's strong, she's independent, she's smart, she's funny, she loves to get high and like she hang out with the friends. She has great earrings that say kill, 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 murder, murder, murder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's <laughs> always looking kind of cool. And yet, like there's something about her performance that you just, you absolutely are, like I don't know, I, I thought she was outstanding. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I'm like the the character, her character itself. I don't know what to think of, and it's something that I don't think I've I've concluded. I mean, this is a this is a movie that that really does have me thinking more than I even I, I knew that that's what people were saying. Like, oh, you're gonna be thinking about this movie later on, but there's something about it, and I don't think it's just straightforwardly the script and the interpretation of the events that make me think about it. It's actually the performances. There is, there is no good person. Like none of them are just like unabashedly, good unabashedly person. good. Um, everybody seems to have mixed motives and the person who is faced with the central tension of choosing between sort of selling out his friends for, for the sake of money um, versus sticking with the union. It's not so obvious that he's doing the wrong thing. And it's certainly not that obvious from the reaction of Tessa Thompson's character at first, right? Yeah. Like she, she's, she's very, she's very yeah. disapproving of him adopting the white voice. And then I don't know if this is too spoilery, we can cut it out. But then when she's doing her performance art piece, she adopts a voice that isn't her own <laughs> either. And like, I, I don't know. I think that undercuts a little bit the... the she, she's not self-righteous about it, but clearly just thinks that it's terrible to have to c- become a completely different person in order to do your job well. And Yeah. Yeah. I wonder... I was left wondering what the director himself... Uh, thinks about that kind of art and i he's obviously an artist a musician himself um but but it's unclear to me whether he's saying that there's anything valuable in what she's doing or or that there's not or or nothing yeah (laughs) i like to think that he's sort of drawn to both of those sort of opinions you know and he's he's good about like just putting it out there and letting us be conflicted about it right Uh, so there's one other thing i want to say which is it's kind of you know boots riley the the director has been rapping you know so so their first album was in 93 i was a young whippersnapper in in northern california i think that's how i got exposed as a college student to to that stuff that's a long time ago and this guy has been putting in work as an artist you know, he's 47 years old now. This is his debut, his film debut. And it's incredible to me, one, that that at this stage in someone's career, they can have such a successful debut movie. 
sometimes you think I like I thought to myself when I saw that this movie was doing well. Well, obviously he's a master storyteller in his raps, but that doesn't mean anything. Like you can no, that doesn't mean you can direct a freaking <laughs> no. movie. I like where the hell did he go? <laughs> and you know there are there are aspects to the movie that might you might interpret as as the work of a novice, right? Yes, but those things are what kind of what make it endearing. Like I I don't know yeah. how else to describe it. Yeah, I mean, it has kind of an amateurish sort of feel to it in parts. But I also think that that's partly like the style that he's going for. Yeah, yeah. And maybe with the exception of the end, I think it is very well directed. Like it is um, the way the sort of momentum of the shots and the movement and the cuts and yeah. like I I I didn't I, I mean I assume, I thought he was younger I didn't know he was forty seven like I'm forty seven yeah. and yeah. they like I like I I didn't know that that that's crazy that he just suddenly de- not only develops the screenplay which you could sort of understand he I guess he wrote the soundtrack first then developed the screenplay with Sundance Labs and right. then it was a big hit at Sundance but then to go on and direct it is and to for it to be really like a really interesting kind of visual voice yeah. that's yeah. that's so impressive yeah i thought he yeah, was yeah. one of these young guys and you know if you're if you're young and if you're like 29 or 30 or 30 you just have nothing but time and energy you know yeah. but no, to do that yeah. at that point is is really No, I know I ha- I had to double check cuz I was like uh, you know I remember their first album was in 1993 and I definitely remember that he was older than me <laughs> like yeah, when barely but yeah uh one really quick thing about the coup so Boots Riley is the rapper he used to have um two other people in the group one of them is a woman named Pam, the Funkstress, who was their DJ, who was just incredible. She died, I believe, last year at age 51. Um, and a sad, very sad death. But she was just one of the great, <laughs> just a great DJ. Um, in her performances, when she would scratch the records, some t- she, she was an incredible scratcher, turntablist. Um, she would do this routine where she would uh, actually use her boobs to scratch the records <laughs> it was incredible but toward toward the end there uh prince saw her and liked her so much that prince made uh her his dj um so she got to tour with prince um so it was, it was a great group while it lasted um that's awesome how yeah. do you uh, scratch records with your boobs type in pam the funkstress scratches boobs into right. youtube and i'm sure you'll see it it's <laughs> it's not what you would think i don't know <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I'm not sure what I do think, but <laughs> uh, all right. Take all a right. break. Take a break, and we'll be back to talk about the Garden of Forking Paths. Well, look, man, you know somebody to keep their mouth shut. I won't blush to murder. Check the south, son. No, I'm only 19, but my mind is older when the things get for real. 
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this time, we like to take a moment to thank all of our listeners, all the people who have made this community such a rewarding community to be a part of. We love hearing from you. We love interacting with you. Um, Maybe with one possible exception. (laughs) Stop sending us the, uh, the fucking little kid like breaking the trolleys on the trolley problem, that video. Like I can't, I can't see that little kid again. Um, <laughs> don't just don't click on it, Tamler. Just I, you're, well, not, you're just announcing how easy it is going to be to troll you. Now. <laughs> hey, he solved the trolley problem. Yes, okay, but you know what? The p- people have been sending that for two. The this, people don't know that everybody else has been sending us. I, I, I understand. <laughs> but now they now I'm, maybe they will. <laughs> Um, anyway, but this is supposed to be pause. I'm not supposed to be bitch. I'm not supposed to be bitching right now about like the interactions. We need to switch with, it up. Uh, you can email us at verybadwizards at gmail dot com. You can find us on Twitter at Tamler at Peas, and then the the show account at Very Bad Wizards, where we post information about all the episodes. You can also follow us on. Or, yeah, follow us on Instagram. I finally got that yes. right. Finally, my daughter posted yesterday. I saw. Yeah. Like, I think Instagram, like, everyone does Instagram right now, so. We could be millionaires if we just got the right followers. <laughs> we really could. We could have uh, our own brand. <laughs> uh, yeah, we need to work on our, bra- on our brand right now. <laughs> you can support, you can rate us on iTunes. You can, what else? Uh, like us on Facebook and join the conversation there. And you can also go to Reddit, which always has a lot of interesting conversations blooming at once. You can, uh, again, like we owe this these two episodes to a Reddit user who suggested Borges' short stories. You can also support us in more tangible ways. You can go to our support page and click on the Amazon link before you buy your purchases, especially uh, expensive purchases. But any purchases, really, will get a small cut of that. You can make a one-time donation on PayPal. And you can become part of our, our our. beloved patreon community we really appreciate that that support as sponsors seem to have uh dried up or (laughs) they come and go but mostly go it seems like uh this is the way that we keep going and it's also our favorite way of our integrity was at stake so we just decided to have a few shows without sponsors yeah that's that's what it is so yes Please um, support us on Patreon, and if you do that, we have some things for just a dollar an episode. You get Dave's Beats. Uh, for $2 and up, you can hear our bonus episode, including an upcoming one on Sorry to Bother You, and we've recorded a couple of those. Oh, I'm also going to do one with Jesse Graham and Natalia Washington on Twin Peaks The Return. I am. Oh, this is the first time hearing of this. So, so it's not an official Very Bad Wizards episode. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I mentioned it to you that I wanted to do that. Uh, they're big Twin Peaks, the the last season. Of, well, just big Twin Peaks fans in general. Jesse Graham has been a guest on the show. Yes, yeah. uh, I'm going to do one with Jordan Peterson on God. <laughs> feel, feel free. <laughs> Enjoy. Have at it. 
And um, <laughs> yes, and then if you're a five dollar and up listener, you get to play a role in determining a topic, which we has just happened recently: the psychology of personality. Um, all of it is great. We love. We we were so grateful for your support, and we hope that it keeps going and we'll try to do what we can to to earn it and for 50 dollars and up the new reward is that we take less than 10 minutes to thank you for, for your support <laughs> i stopped <laughs> rambling yeah <laughs> uh, all right so today's main topic part two of part n on borges this time we're tackling the garden of forking paths um, again, as Tamler said, a suggestion from a Redditor, um, but yet an obvious one. I don't know why it took us six years. By the way, this is going to be six years, right? Yes. In August? Right. This, when This might actually be posted on our, when, whenever our sixth year. Yeah, it definitely will. This is yeah. our sixth anniversary episode. Oh, man. We don't wow. even, we don't even get each other flowers anymore. No. <laughs> it's just, we're going through the motions at this point. <laughs> doing podcasts with other people um once our daughters go to college it's like will we even <laughs> stay together i don't know uh i'm jealous of yoel and bar and mickey and slick for their new romance <laughs> they <Yeah>. drink together <laughs> they're, they're they're still in the honeymoon phase yeah. uh <clears throat> all right garden of working paths so this is uh, as tamler mentioned published in the same um, collection as the Library of Babel. Um, and it, I think it really does, as you say, make sense to read them back to back. So before I get into wh- what we'll do is we'll just briefly describe this, you know, the surface story, what Freud called the manifest content of the story. Because um, it has a plot. Like it has, it a- has a, it's actually a good story <laughs> yeah. like in that sense. Yeah. But definitely read it. It's again, short. It's dense, but it's short. Get past the first two paragraphs, and you'll be right in the mix. I, I, uh, I, I would say not just read it, but I almost think that it has to be read like two or three times before you can begin to sort of feel how things are fitting together and like get yeah. some kind of take on it. Like it's definitely one you need to reread. Um, I absolutely agree. And it goes down also smoother the second when you read it the second time and you sort of know at some level what's going to happen and now you can focus on the other sort of right whatever freud called the other <laughs> the latent content the latent <laughs> content. <laughs> um so so the story is a fairly straightforward one um it is an the the, the narrator <clears throat> the editor is is talking about a particular period of time during the first world war when um, there was a battle that was postponed, and he says the official reason for why this battle was delayed is as follows, and he he lists a reference, um, but he says this statement that I found sheds some different light on the events, and so then he picks right up off uh, right up at the narration of a man who is played some role in the events um, of that battle in in, in World War One. It is a German spy of Chinese descent who realizes that he has a very valuable piece of information, so a secret that he has to communicate to his superiors in Germany. The secret is the location of an artillery base in England that Germany ought to attack. 
and he has to figure out a way to communicate this uh, to to the Germans before he gets caught by an English spy who's on his trail, hot on his trail. So this is an Irish guy named Richard Madden, Dr. Yutsu, and a former professor of English, uh, who is the German spy. Um, he attempts to call a, a fellow German, but the phone is answered by this British spy. So he knows immediately at that point that the British spy is hot on his trail, that the other German was probably killed. He has no immediate direct way of trans, uh, transmitting this information. So he formulates a plan, and that plan he doesn't tell you right away. As he knows, he only has a little bit of time left to evade the English spy. He departs from his apartment, hops on a cab, and goes to a train station. At some point, he looks in a phone book. He, he looks uh, in a phone book for a name, finds the name that he was looking for, takes a train to a small town in England, um, is directed by, this is late at night, he's barely evaded the English spy who missed the train that he took. Um, so he knows he has a good hour before the other the other train will will get the English spy to him. He uh, gets directions to go to the house of one Stephen Albert, um, is told by some boys on the train far away, but the easiest way to get there is just keep turning left on the road and you'll get there eventually. He gets to the house of uh, Dr. Stephen Albert, who is a sinologist, we discover, a scholar of, of Chinese culture, uh, although he is a British man. And there... The conversation that he has, Yun Soon, with, with Dr. Stephen Albert, that's sort of the, the part of the story that is the meat, right? The, the, as, as it happens, it turns out that this Chinese scholar of English descent is a, um, particularly interested in the works of a Chinese a man who lived 100 years ago named Tsui Pen, and who turns out to be one of one of Yunsun's ancestors, the, his the great grandfather, German, yeah, his yeah. great grandfather, and this this person, Sui Pen, <laughs> had abandoned all of his successful life in order to construct a labyrinth and to write a novel. It said, and it was sort of to the disgrace of the family because they never found the labyrinth that he was supposedly constructing, and his novel was a hot mess. It's just a really long, rambly, it was like Tambler's thank you segments. It's just like, it's <laughs> unclear, unclear what was going on. <laughs> and novels were also a look, look down, down upon, upon that's genre, right. that's like right. podcasting. In, in China. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there is much discussion of the nature of the, these two tasks that Sui Pen was engaged in. And Stephen Albert shed some light on this. On, on what his theory is of what was going on with this, on the surface, very confusing novel. Um, and he puts forward a theory that, in fact, the novel and the labyrinth were one and the same, which we'll get back to. The- well, so what his theory is, I think we can say, mm-hmm. is that the reason the novel doesn't make any sense is because he has this theory of time, which is that every time human beings makes a choice, that leads to a kind of a new branch of a universe that now events unfold based on that choice. And he he tells these multiple stories that don't seem like they cohere, but the reason they don't cohere is because in one of them, a character made one choice, and another one, a character made a different choice. 
and he puts those two things together. He puts those two events together in ways that seem inconsistent, which is why they think it's a baffling mess. But it, 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 according to the sinologist Stephen Albert, this is exactly what the labyrinth that he's constructed is. It is the novel, and it is this idea about how human choices create different universes and different futures, and he's putting them all together, or at least some of them together in this book. Right, sort of an, an incomplete uh, version of the total universe it's yeah. based on the bifurcation of of universes um, that are created each time a decision must be made. So, so yeah, it wasn't that this uh, Sui Pen was constructing a labyrinth and writing a novel. It was that the novel itself was a labyrinth, but not in physical space, but a labyrinth in time. And essentially that this would be, if it were, if it, it were possible to complete, it would be an infinite novel because every single decision that could be made would be made. And Would it be infinite or would it be... Yeah, I, they say the word infinite a lot. Um, they do. But, but in the same way, the library isn't infinite. Yeah. I mean, it can't be, it can't be infinite unless the time itself is infinite. Right. right. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, so... It's a lot. <laughs> we still don't know it's a lot. <laughs> we still don't know why. This is one of the reasons why the story is confusing the first time around. It's unclear why um, Yoon Soon went to st- visit Stephen Albert in the first place. Why they got in this in this discussion to begin with was it just fortuitous? Was you know did he know that his that that this guy was a scholar of of his ancestor? Um, and it turns out no, because we realize in pretty much the, just the last paragraph. That the sole reason that he had picked Dr. Stephen Albert's house um, was that he realized that if he assassinated a man with the last name Albert, that would be a way to communicate to the Germans the secret identity of the city that contained the cache of, of English weapons, or of English artillery, because the city itself was named Albert. A known German spy killing a random person with the name Albert would effectively communicate the name of the city that they ought to attack. Um, and so the story ends with Stephen Albert turning his back upon re- upon the request of Yun Sun to, to show him a letter from his ancestor. Again, he turns his back. Um, Yun Sun shoots him in the back just as the English, Irish English spy is walking in to arrest him. And then we find out that this entire account has been written as he is awaiting his death sentence by hanging. Yeah. And he says that he successfully communicated it and that the leader solved the riddle. Isn't clear is whether that had any real effect, given right. what we find out in the, in the first part of the story, which is that it was just, at, at most, there was an inconsequential delay. Right. At, at least if this is the same event that they're talking about and... And if it's not, if those two, if they're not talking about the same incident, it's not clear why, why the editor would say that this letter casts light on the events, but. Right, uh, right. So, so it seems as if the editor thinks that the official version of the stories that Reigns delayed the attack um, are hiding the potential possibility that the delay was caused by the bombing of this English artillery station. Although, no matter what, we obviously know that the English won. (laughs) And that 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 whatever caused the delay was only a few days, um, 
Right. And the one thing that, that I didn't say that we do get is uh, a sense throughout, um, especially upon second reading, knowing what the, the objective of visiting this, this man, Stephen Albert, is, is this sense of, of self-judgment. Uh, Yun Sun, the, the uh, Chinese man who is spying for the Germans, feels like shit that he is killing an innocent man in order to get the job done. He calls himself a coward. And one of the reasons that he explicitly says that he is doing it is because he wants the leader to, of Germany to know that an Asian man, a yellow man, is capable of saving um, his people, even though they're looked down upon. His race is looked down upon. He's right. he, he, he has no love for Germany, this guy. No. Uh, he calls but... it a, a barbaric. What, what <laughs> yeah. does he call it? What do I care for a barbaric country that has forced me to the ignominy. Ignominy? Ignominy? Ignominy is how it's written. Ignominious. Let's just say it's ignominious spying. Um, so so he has active disdain for, for Germany for forcing him into this, but he nonetheless has a job to do and he's going to do it well and, and you know show him show the Germans that, that a Chinese man can contribute. And so a few things after you read it stand out as puzzling. I mean, obviously, one of the things on the first reading that I was questioning is, given that he has no love for the Germans and that he, the person he thinks he has to kill turns out to be someone who has uncovered the truth about his disgraced great-grandfather and has redeemed him in a in a way up till now everyone has thought that he either just went crazy or that and they've actually tried to burn the novels uh the novel because it was like they, they thought it was shameful what he was doing in a way that i think almost explicitly recalls the purgers in the library of babel right they would have burned it because they thought it didn't mean anything and that it was worthless. And then it turns out, at least according to this sinologist, Stephen Albert, that it's actually deeply meaningful. And yet he goes ahead and kills him anyway. Uh, Why would he do that? And did he really do that is, was my first thought. Because it seems like, it seems like an extraordinary coincidence (laughs) that this man, the one man with the name Albert in that town that he is in, happens to also be the one person that can uh, reveal the truth about his grandfather's works, great-grandfather's works. Right. So this is, this is, um, you know, I I didn't have that thought. I, I thought it was he did it so begrudgingly just out of sheer duty. And he just sort of made this determination just to get it done. This is a a great passage toward the beginning where he says, if you have to do something heinous, right? If you have to do something that's atrocious, um, then just pretend as if you've already done it, just act as if it's already been done and it'll be much easier. And I think that's sort of what, what he knew going into this. But, can, I, can I read that passage that yeah, it's yeah. referred to? I foresee that mankind will resign itself more and more fully to more and more horrendous undertakings. Soon there will be nothing but warriors and brigands. 
I give them this piece of advice. He who is to perform a horrendous act should imagine to himself that it is already done, should impose upon himself a future as irrevocable as the past. This is what I did while my eyes, the eyes of a man already dead, registered the flow of the day. What's so interesting about that as you sort of then read further in the story, because that comes early, before you know about the, the, his, his ancestor's novel, the way that is set up is that we really do have these choices that aren't irrevocable, right? They, you, we create different futures with our choices and our decisions. And so imagining that the future is fixed in this way, at least initially, seems in tension with the idea of the novel, unless you think that, okay, I'm just, this is my... Yes. This is my future. That's right? what so that's, that's what so so then it's it's kind of like that is like I I'm imagining that you know this is my possible life and right. it's at, and there's and I, and I can't go into any of the branching lives. This is right. the one that's me. And maybe just this has to exist anyway. It's so, going to exist and by the way did you so I sent you and I'll link to this. Did, did you look at all of that essay that I sent you? Yeah, and in fact, I had come across that before, yeah. and it was a yeah, definitely link to it. It's I w- I wouldn't read it until you've read the story a couple oh, times, sure. two or three p- times, so to sort of get your own, yeah. uh, at least preliminary take on it. I don't think it gives you any kind of obvious interpretation of the story, but it gives you a lot, it raises a lot of things to think about. Yeah, so. As I reread the story and then as I read that, I just got this like giddiness. There's so much to unpack. Like there's so, so, there's so much that I hadn't and that I hadn't even thought about. Um, but one of the things that really blew my mind um, is just the the parallels that that Borges is drawing. I mean, so so the the author of this essay is trying to to analyze, dissect um, what what it would mean to have a labyrinthine text, like what it means to construct a text, uh, a text itself that is a labyrinth. And he, he makes some sort of argument that, that this story in and of itself is sort of a labyrinth. One of the things that blew my mind is Stephen Albert is the name of the, Ch- the Englishman who's, who studies Chinese culture. And Sui Pen is the name of the Chinese man who he's studying, the great-grandfather of, of the protagonist. Those, the phonetics are just too similar, Stephen and Sui Pen. Like, oh, yeah. They're just too similar, right? Like they are, in, in some ways, it seems as if he's saying these are aspects of the same person. There's another point that he makes in there where he, he talks about the, the, the labyrinth in with the minotaur in the center. So he says, yeah. you know, this, this is an aspect of, of, of labyrinths, the monster in the middle, the minotaur being two things, man and bull. Um, Stephen Albert is sort of this English man who is, is living almost the life of the Chinese man. Um, but there's also this dualism with the Chinese man who is trying to, to spy for the Germans. And there is the Irishman who's spying for the English um, and it's unclear what Borges is trying to say. But also, the, a dualism in Sui Pen 
it's novel, Stephen Albert trying to understand it, and mm-hmm. us trying to understand this short story. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And so the the thing that I kind of latched onto in reading the the commentary is you read the story the first time and you know you take it a certain way now you could just end it there or you could read it again and then and really try to figure out what's going on and now you could go in all sorts of different directions just like a labyrinth so one thing you could focus on is like you said the the similarities and the names and the parallels. Another thing is Liddell's heart. So the, the <laughs> opening right. is on page 242 of the History of the World War. Liddell Hart tells us that an Allied offensive against the blah, blah, blah. You could look and see if that's a real book or is it just a sort of an invention of Borges. And it turns out it's kind of a real book. <laughs> Yeah. But it doesn't have that exact title, and that's not the right pagination. And the dis- the events that are describing are slightly different. And then you notice, oh, that's sort of like the you know the Garden of the Forking Paths, where things can be a little different depending on what sort of future you're in or what part of the t- time you're in. And so you could go down that rabbit hole, or you could go down like all sorts of other different rabbit holes. It's like Borges is giving you all these entryways that you could choose to dive into or not. And whether you do sort of depends on like how you're going to then think about the story for now. Right. Are you going to, and, and is this path going to lead to a dead end? Are you, are we going to get stuck in this labyrinth and what, you know? Uh, And so the other, you can even read the author of the commentary sort of going a little crazy trying to figure out whether there was, in fact, this book in Spanish, Historia de la Guerra Europa. Well, there's not a book named exactly that, but there is a book that's very close to that name that is right. about the First World War. And But it's not on in any edition he can find. There's not exactly those words, not on that page, but kind of those words. In other, and so it's, you you can imagine this is where, where I drew a parallel to the Library of, of Babel. You could just imagine almost a, a wasted life where you're trying to figure out what Borges was trying to tell us. Did he insert the error or was he just being sloppy? Like it's it's totally unclear. And that kind of shit just fascinates me. Like when it, we lack the decoder. So yeah. we don't know what's like in the library. You could come up upon a book that could be deeply meaningful or it could be misleading, and it's and it's like that's what we are with this story. It's because precisely what you said, we don't know if he was being careless. I kind of doubt it, mm-hmm. you know. But or if he was just taking liberty, a certain liberty that any short story author might take or fictional mm-hmm. fiction author might take, you know, like it would be too boring if you said what right. what Liddell actually <laughs> said, you know, right. Little um, heart, so yeah, and he's not, you know, but he's he's just not telegraphing. He's not making up an author. He's not making up a war. You know, he's he is giving yeah. you just enough, and you're just like, wait, is this? And then there's a in the the Chinese text that is alluded to Hun Meng, I think is the name of it. Yeah, um, that itself is the closest analog to the Garden of Forking Paths. Um, that is just filled with tons of characters and there's no, the narrative arc doesn't make sense. 
And when you look into the history of that particular text, you see that it was heavily, you know, it was never fully published. It was, it, it was handwritten, then finally published years and years later. But there have been editors upon editors over time that have made their, their own alterations to the story. And it's unclear whether uh, some of the things that seem like errors were just editorial decisions. Um, right. So, so you can lose yourself in all of that stuff. Right. And this isn't even to get to the, I think, the fascinating aspect of what Stephen Albert is trying to say about this, that he's found a labyrinth, which, which is to get back to the question of time and this particular theory that all events that can happen will happen just in different universes. Am, am I, I think it's pretty obvious that he's, he is toward the end when, um, uh, Yun Soon, the protagonist, <clears throat> has this feeling. I forget the, the word. He uses a weird word uh, to describe the feeling. Pollulation. Yeah. Um, that I had to look up. I didn't know what the fuck that meant. That he is <clears throat> in the center of the labyrinth where every version of events that could happen is happening. And he can almost sense the traces of all of those instances where that's that Stephen Albert lays out so well. I sorry, I had the Spanish one pulled up. Um, where he says, "Look, in some re- most realities, we don't exist. In some realities, you came to visit me because you're a friend. In some realities, I exist, you don't. Um, vice versa." So, and 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 Yun Sun says, "But in every reality, I thank you for the work that you've done uh, for my ancestor." And he says, "No, it's not true. In some realities, you're my enemy." And you get the sense that this is the nexus of these parallel universes, right? There is some mystical center of, of the universe where everything is happening and he can get faint glimpses of it. So pullulate, however that's pronounced, means to just multiply rapidly. Yeah. To like, uh, kind of proliferate um, really, really quickly. And that's like a feeling that he has, which right. is exactly what you say. Like... It is this sort of all of these things are somehow happening at once, which is the theory of time that uh, is, according to Stephen Albert, the, the, at the center of his uh, conception of time, of Sui Pen, Sui Pen, right? Yeah, uh, of, of his conception of time, which is that all these different futures are happening um simultaneously and then like you say that's interesting so can i read just that uh, the yes. little pastor says from that moment on i felt all about me and within my obscure body an invisible intangible pollution not that of the divergent parallel and finally coalescing armies but an agitation more inaccessible more inward than that yet one of those armies somehow prefigured um, but it's just just outside of his reach right it's just a feeling and that's sort so do you have uh, a take to use that bad word um <laughs> on what the underlying reality of this story is you know if you think there is one what it is yeah it's it's funny but borges over and over again always he he would always say that there was nothing that was that like that deep that he was trying to convey. He was just writing a story, which in some ways is bullshit, but in other ways, like, you know, like I, I kind of 
kind of believe that he's just doing a mind fuck. It's just that he was so good at doing the mind fuck. And the mind fuck wouldn't be a mind fuck if there wasn't actually something super, super layered and deep and interesting. So so I think that he is there is there is a meta aspect to the story that that fucks with me. And all their meta always fucks with me in some way. The fact that that Borges himself is constructing a labyrinth within a labyrinth. Within yeah. a labyrinth, within a labyrinth, um, within a labyrinth, <laughs> to to infinite regress, potentially to infinite re- regress. Um, the theory of time, that is the one aspect of this story that I think everybody uh, really remembers, might be saying that uh, it's not so. So take traditional determinism that says, like, look everything that you were going to do was written, you know, since, since the big bang matter in motion, the principles of the initial state of the universe and the principles of physics mean that there is one and only one thing that could happen right now. And that is that I'm holding a microphone talking to Tantler Summers. So you can take that for what it is that you might say, well, we have no free will at all. Um, there is no way in which anything else could have happened. So often it is freedom of the will is described as, as, the ability to have done otherwise, right? So in that traditional take on determinism, there's absolutely no way um, that anyone could have done otherwise. Uh, the, the complete opposite, a libertarian conception of free will is no, you have free choice every single time. This is somewhere, this, uh, there's a weird sense of, uh, like I get this weird, <laughs> I don't know what to feel about it, but in a, in a reality in which every possible, every possible decision that can be made is in fact made. I do not know whether that is a deterministic take or a free free take. Because uh, I, I don't even. It each, all happens in the same way that every book given in the library yeah, had exactly. to exist, given exactly. under those rules. Even though there's all of these different branching possibilities of books, ultimately every single book had to exist, and according to this idea, every single reality had to exist right and this exactly and this one is even more mind fucky to me because in the library of babel every possible book every combination of letters that could exist exists but there are people trying to figure out which are the true things and that itself is the interesting you know aspect to me of that like you know what we talked about at length in the last episode whether or not one could distinguish true from false in that universe or meaningful yeah or i mean meaning, like it's not meaningful. even clear, clear what true means what true that. would even mean yeah. yeah um in this it's it's less epistemological and more metaphysical it is simply saying like this is the nature of reality right this is uh, there, in most universes, you and I don't exist, and in some of them, you and I do and have never met. In some of them, we've met and we never did a podcast. This is just the one <laughs> most we inhabit. And most of them, <laughs> like, uh, I would say that yeah, like it's kind of a miracle. Like the, the branches <laughs> led to a six-year-long <laughs> podcast. Exactly. I agree, although I also think there are some parallels with the library. There are people trying to figure out the library. Stephen Albert is trying to figure out this theory yeah. from with while also being a part of it in the same way that the people in the library are also a part of it. You could look at him in one way as like the bookman. He's decode he's figured it out. He's decoded it. Because most of us don't know that the if if time were really like that, most of us yeah. don't know that. 
but right. he does, or at least, or uh, Sui Pen does. Sui Pen does. So right. there's a, and there are these there are these sort of um, Borges is throwing these little allusions to the appearance of Stephen Albert being at once young and old, right? And it's it's almost as if he's not just figured out the the theory but that figuring out the theory has allowed him to be sort of in the cradle of this the universe right in the in that space where everything splits and when you view it that way the fact that Stephen Albert and Yoon Soon meet in that particular space means i think that the story could have ended in any number of ways yeah it just so happens to be that this is the one where he's a despicable coward and is going to get hung and that that happens to be the one that we're we're reading as readers exactly and and i get the sense that what he wants that it's it's a particularly sickening feeling to yun soon who uh, apologies to anybody who speaks actual man (laughs) the way that we've been pronouncing all this i don't i don't know you can correct me send a little recording um, yeah. because I want to know um, that it is a particularly mournful end because if they're in that nexus and if this uh, this feeling that he's had that he can almost see the other outcomes, the other universes, one of those universes maybe where he did a more honorable thing, um, he got a glimpse of the alternative worlds and now he's faced with the fact that he is living in this shitty version of the world in the inescapable like because he made the choice to kill him he's now entrapped in in the one where he's going to get hung and he did this cowardly betrayal and there is a there's a uh, passage um in the very beginning that he says was i now about to die then i reflected that all things happen to oneself and happen precisely precisely now Century follows century, yet events occur only in the present. Countless men in the air, on the land and the sea, yet everything that truly happens, happens to me. And the thought that there are near infinite universes, and in this one, you have to be the person who lives in the one where you did this dishonorable thing. You, and, and so faced with the, the multiverse um, of, of all of the of all of the universes in which you exist and you came to see Stephen Albert, that this is the one uh, that you end up in sucks, but then there's no real option. Everything that happens only happens to you. The existence of all those other Yunsoons matters not like not at all. And yeah, they're, and they're just out of reach. They're out of reach. Everything and- that happens happens to you. But you can perceive it in the same way that like, there's so many things where, Oh, if, if, only this had just gone right you can especially when it's close you can picture it you can like you know like you can picture yourself in this different slightly different alternate timeline and and that again it has that same mood as the library of Babel in that it's there's this kind of pervasive weariness and kind of muted despair that and the source of that is in part this idea that there is this nearby yet inaccessible sort of 
better future for you. you That's know? right. And and the question of whether you can so imagine all the bifurcating you know branches, but you simplify it to some some subset of all of one life and all those decisions. Um, and you now just highlight the line that you are on. Yeah. Is it right to say, you know, in a metaphysical sense that you could have been on another timeline? Or is it right to say that that in some sense strict determinism is true, that in this universe there was no other possible way that you could have you, that you could have done anything, right? So are those other timelines just out of reach because you could have been on them? I think not. I think that it is every timeline is every timeline. So, okay, I want to I, I, I want to address that because, but then I also want to give sort of a totally different way of entering this story. Okay. So, he he does say that in all fictions, each time a man meets diverse alternatives, he chooses one and eliminates the others. In the work of the virtually impossible to tangle Sui Pen, the character chooses simultaneously all of them. That's right. He creates thereby several futures, several times, which themselves proliferate and fork. It does sort of seem like a, a man's choice. And again, there's, there's no mention of the existence of women in, I think, either of these two stories. No, it's but, just dedicated to a woman. <laughs> yeah. But the choice seems like the thing that a person does have control of and like so one way of understanding that is you're in the driver's seat almost in in the way that the sort of agent causal libertarian might jerk off to like just dream of that you get to choose which universe or which uh particular fabric of time you're going to live in by making those choices and then so one way of understanding it is the sickening feeling is the feeling of i fucked myself i put myself in a bad fabric right and there's no way we can t tackle this <laughs> in this episode but it does lead me to question whether or not um it is especially illustrative of the illusion uh, that it was your choices because those other universes where you made other choices exist and it's like well what determined the difference between a universe in which you chose left versus chose right Right. Especially you know. if all of them end up existing anyway. Exactly. Um, so here's the another way, and this is like this goes back to the idea that this is a labyrinthian text. Yeah. I was gonna get back to that. Like what is the particular because the theory of time isn't necessarily a labyrinthian text, right? Like it's it, a, yeah. But it is a rabbit hole that you could choose to go down as you try to understand the you could try to get to because it does seem like the central sort of core of the story that there is this theory and you you could try to just really focus on the philosophy of that and the metaphysics of that and what that means the second time i read it second or third but i started to notice the dreamlike elements of the story it is there's so many dreamlike elements he's being pursued he's being chased and the person who's chasing him is sort of he has only a dim sense of what that person looks like and who it is. 
then he's on the train. He's he's on the train, and the train just stops in the middle of the countryside. Nobody yeah. says the name. I'm like, this is all very much like how a dream is experienced, right? Yeah. Nobody says the name of the station. He has to ask somebody. Then they're just these boys standing in a in a spotlight, but with their faces shadowed, who just ask him if he's going to Mr. Albert's house. Like, how do they know? Why would yeah. they even assume that? And you never see their faces. Again, that's very dreamlike. The idea that you would just turn left at every crossing and get to this house. Mm-hmm. Like the There's, weirdest instructions. <laughs> exactly. There's a line where he says he felt himself a, an abstract perceiver of the world in the way that sometimes as a, in a dream, like you, you feel like you're the agent and sometimes you feel like you're watching over yourself in a weird way but, but, and both like you can't it's, it's yeah. almost like you can't you can't describe it in when you, you wake can't. up because you were both you were exactly <laughs> yeah. right exactly then maybe the most dreamlike part of it is just the meeting with albert but he arrives at the house chinese music is just playing mm-hmm. in the background he doesn't even notice it at first then the door opens and it says a lantern was making its way toward me. A lantern cross-hatched and sometimes blotted out altogether by the trees. A paper lantern, the shape of a drum and the color of the moon. It was carried by a tall man. I could not see his face because the light blinded me. He opened the gate and slowly spoke to me in my own language. And then, you know, that that, that their scene starts. But just that uh, introduction of Stephen Albert as this lantern that is just sort of floating towards him. And again, there's this thing of faces being hidden. You could look at this as the dream of the 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 letter writer here yeah um or somebody's yeah. dream in any case which would give you a totally different way of understanding it would be a, its own different rabbit hole like why is he dreaming this and why is the dream about his about an ancestor who wrote a novel and understanding it and you know and uh-huh. what really happens what's the real reality of of the uh, right of the right. text no, yeah, I like that. I mean, the it, I don't know what that. I mean, aside from giving this like feeling, like there is some there is some feeling of what it is like to be dreamlike. He's presenting it as as the written sort of last testament of this guy who's about to be assassinated. Right. The the narrator is the narrator is it present- as a letter. Yeah. Uh huh. And yeah. how does that fit into the dream? theory yeah if it's a theory yeah and, but then why I, is he writing a letter in this dreamy in this dreamy way unless that once he sort of perceived that when he was in that garden of the the forking paths in the middle and he and he had this sort of realization maybe he's just sort of stuck in this dreamlike state from from that experience uh, i mean yeah it's 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 almost like you know you could read it as this sort of a, a metaphysical event that happens almost magic or maybe not like it's, I mean, it's very it's, <laughs> that's again this idea of the labyrinthine text like maybe you could take the dream theory further or maybe it'll be a dead end and you want to go back to the point where you you know thought of it as no this is a straight a more straightforward yeah. narrative of a of a spot of a real spy who really did kill Stephen Albert and who but that that takes you the, you know that raises all sorts of 
different other questions. Yeah. Just the sheer coincidences of everything that's happening. It's so neat, you know, that, that Stephen Albert happens to be his grandfather's great-grandfather's right. decoder, you know? Right. There's also, like, I'm trying to find the, the like, this the surreal nature of the story itself. You know, there is something ab- about what it must feel like to know that you're about to die where you're in this dreamlike state. Like, and, and the whole thing is written with this tone and he's, you know, even when he's talking about what he did, when he decided that he was going to like enact his plan, he looks in the mirror and says goodbye to himself. Right. (laughs) And it's just like, well, at that point you're just like, this is all just the the fever dream of a man who's about to be uh, about to be killed. Yeah, um, and maybe like that, he's he was just like a just an ordinary trader or an yeah, ordinary like exactly, and maybe he's he is because because the the opening there is no reason to construct a story where the opening isn't you could he could have just written Borges could have just written the story as first person narration from from Yunsun the whole time. So what yeah. does it mean that he says? Well, look, like the official version is that this happened, but I found a letter that says something else might have happened. Yeah. It could be the ramblings of a madman, uh, a traitor who got executed and and in had a fever dream in the moments before his death, much like the Lynch Mulholland Drive. Where or Lost like, Highway. You know, it has some very yeah. Lost Highway, a man on death row, like right, literally right. coming, in the, in the coming up with a different version of the past. Right. And And it's a pretty fucking cool story to tell. Um, you know, for all we know, he was a petty thief who broke into this guy's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, he's created this like really cool, elaborate fantasy spy story, metaphysical, like, yep. Just... And the only, and the only, I think the only reason to open up with the actual historical event and also to within the first this is a, a a very weird thing, but it does it does something to discredit um, the the narrator, um, right? Just as the history book at the beginning does something to discredit the letter that follows and the accounts that follow. Yeah. But he has a footnote. Um, the editor puts this footnotes where where Yunsun is just hung up the phone and he knows that his German colleague Runeberg has been. Uh, arrested or assassinated. Borges puts this footnotes that says, this is a contemptible conclusion to reach. Um, Obviously it could have been that he shot the guy in self-defense. And it's like, why, (laughs) why did you write a story where you're disagreeing (laughs) with the very, like you're being an editor that disagrees with the account that you just, just write it. Why, like, why is he inserting himself? And I think the only reason is that he's inserting himself to say, Hey, like I don't trust this guy's judgment. Or maybe don't trust mine. I got yeah. it. You can't, you can't, whatever you do, you can't read this with any confidence. <laughs> and that it introduces this element. I think the essay referred to this of subjectivity in like, it's the same event it's that the same they're event. both discuss, that they're both discussing, which is Hans Rubner is, is, is killed and Richard yep. Madden kills him. Right. But the que- the question is whether it was an act of self-defense or a murder. And so that's really more, Less a the event right. happened. It's more of a Rashomon 
it's like, more of a yeah perspective kind of and there's you know that's another layer of this sort of multiplicity which is not only are is every possible event occurring but it, like there's all these different interpretations of each events that proliferate and um spin <laughs> spin out of control i guess right um, hey, i have a, a question for you the very last the very last page um um, the very last uh, paragraph. The rest is unreal and significant. Madden burst into the room. I have most importantly triumphed. I've communicated to Berlin. The secret name of the city to be attacked yesterday It was bombed. I read about it in the same newspapers that post all of England the enigma of the murder of the eminent sinologist Stephen Albert by a stranger Yusun. There is some ambiguity there, which is that it can't have been... When he says the same newspapers it can't have been the same edition of the newspaper because the, if it were the same edition, he would be reading about the successful bombing and the death that was supposed to be the signal to in, for the successful bombing. So, so it could be that he's saying this guy's fucking insane. Um, and one of the ways in which he could be insane is that he's, he's made up this story and the, and he doesn't even himself realize the inconsistency that uh, if it were in the same edition of the newspaper, his story wouldn't make sense. It's almost right. like, and he just found to be clear newspaper. why it doesn't make sense is if the Germans had gotten the signal, they, they would have gotten it from those papers, from those papers, then attacked it. Then, attacked then another it edition of the newspaper would have to report the attacking of the, yeah. of the bombing of the city. That's right. And, and so, so, you know, one way to interpret this is, is almost, a, you know, talk about, uh, we mentioned Nolan once before. I mean, Nolan isn't even the best. It's sort of a, a, um, a usual suspects where, where the whole story might have been created in his mind as he's about to die from reading two things in the same newspaper, right? right. He's Kobayashiing it, but, in yeah. his, but, but he's believing it, right? He's, <laughs> he, is, he created the story from reading two headlines. Yeah, and there so there's so many different ways of interpreting that. Again, you could go with the 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 fever dream that, you know, lacks at the end you realize that it lacks a uh, coherence. You could read it as the same newspapers like he's now really in multiple different times like because he says the same papers and this multiplied, so you could maybe make it into some sort of metaphysical I'm in a lot of different places at once, which would sort of cohere with how he, the pullulation that right. he felt before. But no, uh, it's, it's weird. And I have a couple questions for you. The Stephen Albert, I'm sure these are all related in some intricate way, but Stephen Albert gives an example of the different futures that are in this novel. And one of them he describes is this battle, right? Mm -hmm. So it says two, two versions of a single epic chapter. In the first, an army marches off to battle through the, a mountain wilderness. The horror in the rock, of the rocks and darkness inspires in them a disdain for life, and they go on to an easy victory. In the second, the same army passes through a palace in which the ball is being held. The brilliant battle seems to them a continuation of the fete, and they win it easily. So what's so interesting about that, this is like the one big example of 
like how he's telling <laughs> two versions of the same story. And it's not totally clear there that they are different stories. Like in both cases, the same army wins the battle really easily. Yeah. And it really is a change more in their perspective of why they won the battle easily rather than like you would think if you were if you were describing this concept you would have one side winning in one version and another side winning in another version but in both of these the same side wins the battle easily not even just wins but wins it easily Um, yeah that's super interesting because it, it seems as if he's trying to use an example in which an outcome is inevitable. But like there is some slice of timelines in which an outcome is going to happen. It's just, it's kind of interesting that in some, the cause of that outcome is so different, right? They're so, in one, they're full of despair from the darkness and the horror. And they they are like motivated to defeat the other. Uh, in another one, it's a completely different cause that leads to the same exact outcome. But again, it's not even necessarily that it's a different cause. It is a different interpretation of the cause, right? Uh, well, but but he's saying in one, are they're, they passing they're march- through a different place? Yeah, in one, they're marching through the mountains in the des- abandoned mountains, and and they have to like get get through this horrible landscape. In another one, they're actually passing through a, an actual party. But isn't the idea that they crossed the mountains and then went into the party or that those things didn't happen at the same time? Because it's not like I understood it as so it says in the first they cross the mountain in the second they cross a palace where there's a party. Yeah, I guess my thought was they're just focusing on different recent events um, but maybe not. totally possible, right? Like totally possible. Bo- yeah. Both both of them in both versions. It's just that the the historians or the 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 counts they recounted in different ways. So if you're right, though, then it's interesting that it seems like certain events are fixed, like they were going to easily win the battle, and well, yeah. just how that was going to happen, and that that sort of fits with one part of it, which is where he just imagined he has to kill kill Stephen Albert. How that happens can be different, but he's killing Stephen Albert one way or the other. But then there's other things where it seems like sometimes I kill you, sometimes you kill me, yeah, sometimes we're friends, sometimes right. we're enemies. And this is the thing. like so, so imagine that you focus on one outcome. So in this case, it is the outcome of this battle. There is, and now you, you, know, you take your Sharpie and you draw around a little circle around all the timelines in which this army easily defeats the other in some of the versions of that story it's you know if all you look at is that slice of universes the outcome is is inevitable in some it just interestingly gets there in a different way but then if you widen the scope there you know there are obviously versions of reality where those countries don't even exist let alone have armies that battle each other um but he does say in the at the at the end of that paragraph where he describes the the army in both different timelines, he says um, that the final words in all of the versions is that that's how the heroes fought. Tranquilo, admirable corazón. So with a peaceful heart and a violent sword, resigned to die and to kill. And so he's saying, like in all of the versions of that same story, it ends with the same 
So it's like he's drawing a Sharpie around that, those, right? Like the incomplete universe for Sui Pen is still telling the story of how this army won. Right. Um, and it's just telling all the different, which is not necessarily the way, you know, like in a choose your own adventure, which is sort of right. the children's version <laughs> yeah. of what this idea is. It's like you die or you live or right. you like, it's it's not different ways of arriving at the same thing event it's different futures like completely diverging based on a choice that you make right and this it seems like the the outcome is fixed and it's just the different well here's another fucking rabbit hole right because that is that is two ways in which time travel stories are often told right there's two there's one in which the outcome is inevitable so no matter like when when somebody travels back in time to kill hitler they actually set off the events that cause Hitler to be, you know, to come to power or whatever. Like there is no, there's nothing that you do that can change um, the, the outcome. The future is fixed and that all yeah. that gets you out of the paradoxes and stuff. But then there's this other way, right? The back to the future way where you go back right. to the past and you actually change these things. So that, so there's this fluid and it seems as if there are two, you know, maybe the, our protagonist, our, our unreliable narrator is struggling with those two ways of viewing it. Because if it's truly infinite, then there are, of course, universes in which he didn't kill Stephen Albert. But then if you focus on all the universes in which he killed Stephen Albert, in some he killed him because he was a petty thief, and some was because it was this big novel spy game that was going on, and some, you know, what whatever, like the case may be. And, and I can see the despair of focusing on the inevitability of the outcome, no matter what he did. Right. Yes. I mean, and, and, and that would be very fitting with being on death row for whatever right. reason. I yeah. am going to get hung. That's right. Let's think of all the different. <laughs> Let it be for a fucking cool ass spy war. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like you said, it, he could be a petty thief. He could be <laughs> like, uh, but that is fixed. Right. Me hanging at the rope is fixed or right. just us dying period is fixed. Right. right? As right. as as readers, the other question I had for you is when he's describing the fabric of times. He's this is the sort of the core of his theory of time, Sweepen's theory of time. He says the fabric of times that approach one another fork, are snipped off, or are simply unknown for centuries contains all possibilities. I have looked at that sentence. So this is the full. Th- Unlike Newton and Schopenhauer, your ancestor did not believe in a uniform and absolute time. He believed in an infinite series of times, a growing, dizzying web of divergent, convergent, and parallel times. And then the sentence I just read. That fabric of times that approach one another, fork, are snipped off, or are simply unknown for centuries, contains all possibilities. I am struggling to... Uh, to to make sense of that sentence because number one, this idea of 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 a fork that's either snip snipped off or just unknown for centuries. I don't understand what that means. Like why, what, what right. why would it not be known for centuries? And I also just am struggling to just make sense of the the fabric of times that approach one another. Like. Right. So, and so there's an infinite series of times, a growing dizzying web of divergent, convergent and parallel times. So you have timelines that are, are uh, close or distant from one another, um, different in the multiverse. 
So he's imagining this infinite web. Some of them yeah. look like they're starting to converge and some that they diverge and some seem to be almost identical. So I so I'll, I'm just repeating what you said, but I get the snipped off part where right. you can imagine that for any given person it's snipped off or for any given perhaps even world it's snipped off or whatever. Right. If they um, die, then whatever they would have gone yeah. on to do is snipped off. But the simply unknown for centuries yes. is a weird epistemological sentence in there because yes. this is about like the existence exactly. of those timelines, not about the knowledge of those timelines. Yeah. And and it's like some weird viewer like this, maybe Sweet Pen in this account and, and Stephen Albert have some some metaphysical sense of all of these universes but some of them are just out of their reach for for long periods of time for uh, yeah which is but then what does that say are they like <laughs> mystical know. kind of figures you I, know there's yeah. definitely something sort of mystical about the way Stephen Albert is presented for sure but, um, he's like he's he's a he's like you know, gray beard, gray eyes, like Gandalf or Jesus, yeah. which I think is the same. And he which, even says before he's going to, that he has kind of an immortal uh, yeah. look to him, something indomitable and even immortal about the way he looked <laughs> his face in the vivid circle of the lamp. This, this is just insane. Like, it's, like we, like if we were talking about this now versus talking about it three years ago, I bet we would have a completely, this is what's so rich about this story. Like we'd have a completely different conversation if we were talking about this 10 years ago, three years ago, three right. years from now, probably. No, there's so much. This is, it's so funny. Cause what, when I read this, the first on my first read, I was like, Oh, okay. There's that. In, it's an interesting, it's interesting. Again, it's cool that it's a yeah. like a like a spar uh, spy short story, and then I was like, "Oh wow, there's just so much more." There's so much more. Like the uh, the core idea in the Library of Babel is very easy to grok like immediately. Yeah. Like, and once you get that core idea, then it's almost like you don't need to tell the rest of the story. Like the the hexagonal, you know, shape of the individual rooms doesn't matter that much. Like um, no, but I think the way people are responding to it does. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's for sure. But yeah. it's just this. This one has layers no, that right. were either intentional or or not. There are other works of art that are that it reminds me of. You know, there's uh, one of my favorite albums. It's by a, a musician named Jay Dilla who passed away a few years ago. He's he was a an extraordinary DJ and a, a music producer. On his deathbed, he he made an album called Donuts, and Donuts. I'm sure it's not the first and won't be the last, but it if you play it, the very end song connects to the very beginning song in an eternal loop, um, in a really really cool way. But the other thing that he he does that I love that reminded me of of this is um, he in, he inserts errors he was a fan of finding glitches in recorded music and inserting them on purpose. And he was such a perfectionist. Part of it was that you knew that he would never allow an error to happen. And if it did, it was completely intentional. So people have written like articles, books, blog posts about what this could have meant in this particular song that he inserted this particular sound. 
and you can really lose yourself. And sometimes, like I, the feeling I get with Borges, is like just a smart motherfucker who knew how to fuck with us really, really well, and he yeah. just knew the conditions. Like, I mean, that's so. I I don't think that he, I think there's an interesting question of whether he has an interpretation yeah. of the underlying reality or not. But I don't think he's just fucking up with us for the sake of fucking with us. This totally. Again, not surprising because I'm obsessed with it, but this totally made me think of Twin Peaks The Return because in a similar kind of way, um, people are still debating. It's been a year since it, almost a year since it ended and over a year since it started airing. And and there's multiple, and I'm familiar with all of them, blogs and Reddit uh, threads and podcasts that are still going, still trying mm. to wrap their heads around, still trying to make sense of it. And there's so many different interpretations. And there's this meta interpretations also, which is there isn't a single interpretation. And if you try to come up with a single interpretation, you're diminish, you're, you're making it less rich than it actually is. If you try to be like, well, this is time travel and this right. is, you know, like he, so like it has that same kind of endlessly rich kind of quality to it and i i really love this kind of art it's like it's just an invitation to dialogue yeah. among the people who That's are right. experiencing it and i think play you know i i've been i've totally changed my whole opinion of plato in light of all this, like Plato is like that. Nobody knows what the hell he was up to in like the Republic or in Symposium or in all these like it's just and we're still debating and we're still talking about even basic things like is he for the Republic or is he <laughs> like uh, like showing the absurdity of the Republic? And, you know, and I think Plato, again, was also trying to to instill in the, like make the the person who's reading or viewing or listening to like an active participant in the dialogue of understanding, right. like, to be active in a way that like really good art, you play a part. And yeah. Okay. So let me clarify what community. I meant. What yeah. I meant when I said that maybe Borges was just fucking with us or Jay Dillow was just fucking with us because I think it's important, like to, for what I meant that, that it not be interpreted as, there was no intention behind the choices that he made in the story, but rather I think something that is more interesting that is the mark of that good art that you just described, which is Borges or Dilla or Lynch or whoever we're talking about weaves together these things that cause, that cause us to be active participants in it. What I mean by just fucking with us is more that I don't know that Lynch or Borges would could possibly know the number of interpretations that they're inserting. Right. And that it is to almost to, it would almost be condescending to the reader to do that on purpose, but rather it's something that's emanating from this person who's so interesting. Who yeah. is in Borges, who's, who is, you know, fucking fan of like reading the Kabbalah and reading, you know, and writing stories about gauchos having knife fights and, and like, games of math and infinity this is what comes out of him it really is and i've said this before like it's not that i'm being postmodern by saying this but it's some in some sense it is that that it's it would be sad for me if borges or lynch or dilla came and said no no, no this is what i meant when i inserted that sound right. like this is exactly what i meant because that 
they might have convinced themselves that that's what they meant, but I don't buy, like the artist is creating something out of ways that she doesn't even realize and that it is the complexity of, of her mind that is causing this work of art. Not any explicit, necessarily any explicit, like maybe in some cases, super explicit, yeah. but not always, right? So I just can't imagine that anybody like a Lynch could could conceive of all of the like... No, right. And I think that's... I, again, I, I don't think it's like, oh, this will fuck with... Like, it, they're not trolling they're not trolling readers exactly. or viewers. Right. Yeah. They are just... This is just that their story. And because they are like geniuses they there's gonna it's gonna be open to all these interpretations it's interesting i think both borges and lynch resolutely refuse to give you an interpretation for sure they do want the the person who's viewing their art to be like a real part of it and to build a community around that and again not so that they'll seem smarter or more interesting than they actually are it's the opposite it's like it's it's like a very generous act to yeah. make it make us do like what we're doing right now you yeah. know well and the thing is like it is crueler to the to the listener to the reader to the viewer to have an artist come and t- say you know say you have this like you know view of what what Borges intended. And part of that is constructed from your own life experience. Like you were saying, like three years ago, what would we be saying about this story? Like in some ways, this is allowing us to inject whatever systems of thinking and meaning and experience, life experiences that we've had um, into the story. And to say, nah, dude, it was just a Chinese guy. Like, or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Is there some cruel way of shutting up the listener or the reader? Yeah. That's right. right. But it's also why, like, the usual suspects, good as it is, isn't something that people are still talking about, like, and debating and everything. Like, it is a a cool twist that kind of wraps up that story, and you... We're not going to be talking about it in 40 years in the way that we talk about, (laughs) like, uh, a Borges story. What's great about the Borges story is it is the surface content, like we were talking about before is like you can imagine reading this as an eighth grader or whatever and being like oh it's just the story where like at the end like it was a secret message you know that's the twist and that's that but like it is the rapper like you know it is the rapper that he's given to yeah. a much more interesting story this really I'll, I, I gotta go actually yeah. I gotta go <laughs> my daughter but this made this whole way of thinking is not something it's something I came onto pretty late which is why I say that this is not the way we would be talking about this story five years ago, or at least not the way I would. But it's made me reevaluate my whole way of understanding Plato to the point where I kind of want to, like, I I really do think there's this same kind of meta intentional and that's very connected to his philosophy uh, that he, like, is really intentionally making certain things unresolved so that what's ended up happening happens, which is that people are still talking about what he meant. And they're men it motivates thinking in a way that Kaiser Soze doesn't, right? Like, right. You, yeah. you've wrapped it up too neatly, you know, if it was just very, very clear that that's what was going on. Like, great, I agree, great works of art give you more than what you think they're giving you at first. And yeah. there is a way in which I agree with you that like 
there's a concrete way of thinking that, you know, developmental psychologist Piaget, for instance, like had these stages where he thought, well, you, you get out of concrete, this concrete stage. And when you're 13 or 14, you're, you're getting into like the more ability to think in an abstract way. I think I was stuck in a concrete way of thinking in a, in a really deep sense for a lot longer than that. Like, and I think you're right. It is uh, a way of appreciating art that, that it came a little too late in life. Um, well, we still have some time. We still, uh, we're, I don't know. We're like, in some universes, let's not write us off done. completely yet. Okay, you know? I'm going to end with, I can't not say this for anybody who's been listening this long. <laughs> I know that Rick and Morty is like, t- there's a ton of Rick and Morty that is relevant to this. So I acknowledge, <laughs> just so I want to acknowledge yeah. that. <laughs> witness. You bear witness. <laughs> All right. Uh, that was fun conversation. That Who was. knows how it'll sound from the outside. <laughs> but uh, yes, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Just a very bad wizard.